welcome back to the Modern CFO Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Andrew Seske. I'm thrilled for the episode today because we are joined by Brett Royer, who's head of finance at Fidelity Digital Assets. Brett, thank you so much for being here today. Andrew, thank you for having me. So we're going to dive right in. The world of crypto and the world of digital assets has evolved in a really unique way down to literally the hour, especially this week. So I want to kick off not just on the current event side, but I actually want to go because we're going to have plenty of time to go through those current events. I want to start today actually with your career and then kind of the history of Fidelity Digital Assets, which I know spans back farther than most institutional groups had even considered labs themselves. So we'd love to kick off with maybe some of your educational background, sort of the rise to this position, and then we'll segue in and out of you know how Fidelity Digital Assets is positioned today and what you're thinking about today. So lots to cover. Yeah, sure, great. So I'll start with a little bit of career history. So prior to, to business school, uh, I'd say you know one of my more substantial roles was working in the Merrill Lynch Private Banking and Investment Group. So. There, I was working with a, a former Chicago Board of Trade trader who had sold a business, a trading business for a fairly substantial sum, uh, thought he was going to retire and ride off into the sunset, you know, spent some time doing some personal things, then realized that he got bored and so went back into business as a, as a wealth manager. And, uh, and he ran his own proprietary trading strategy for a lot of the clients that he served. And so I joined his team as sort of a, a mini fund analyst of sorts mm-hmm. that supported the uh, portfolio analysis and trading decisions behind the proprietary strategy that he used on behalf of his clients. And so that was a, you know, a really great experience. I think there I kind of developed my first set of background and skills in, in capital markets, you know, gained a pretty good understanding for how the markets work, traded in some illiquid securities and, uh, and got, got a sense for, you know, what that was like, you know, I was there at a relatively interesting time. So, you know, I was probably in my second or third year, I can't remember exactly which, when, you know, things started to go wrong in, uh, in Wall Street and financial services, right? So, you know, the history is Lehman goes bankrupt, and then Bear Stearns comes about as close as you can get to bankruptcy. And then I remember distinctly going into the weekend, you know, Merrill Lynch was next up as a potential firm that, you know, was looking at having liquidity challenges and potentially could go under. And, you know, I'm sitting there as, as a pretty junior analyst and, and just sort of watching this, you know, from an interested perspective, but also from a perspective of like, you know, my job was on the line. But at that point in time, I didn't have as much to lose, you know, obviously pretty early in my career. But nonetheless, I think it was a pretty you know strenuous time for everybody. And I, I distinctly remember sort of being glued to the TV all weekend, just waiting to see what would happen. And and then sure enough, Bank of America, you know, acquires Merrill Lynch on Sunday. And I was really lucky to have a, you know, a team that supported me and I was able to maintain my, you know, my role throughout then. But, um, you know, re- learned a really lot of hard lessons around what bear markets feel like and look like. And I think that's, um, you know, in part educated some of what I've seen and felt in crypto markets as well. And I think just giving me a little bit of perspective on not getting too lost in the moment, either up or down, right? And, and having an understanding that these things tend to be cyclical, right? And, and there are going to be ups and downs, and you don't want to get too over-indexed on either side of the equation uh, while you're in the moment, which is really hard. Um, yeah. But so, so from there, I, I decided I didn't want to be, you know, a financial advisor. I think that would have been the next move if I stayed there. And uh, that group worked with, you know, $10 billion clients and above. And so, 
you know, particularly difficult prospecting, or right. particularly difficult segment to prospect uh, in a serious way if you're a 25 year old. So I uh, decided anyway that I wanted to be on more of an analytical track and, and more of a CFO track anyway. So made sense to go back to business school and sort of pivot. And so I went to the University of North Carolina, got my MBA there. And around that time, Fidelity had just started recruiting at University of North Carolina for mm-hmm. a financial leadership rotational program. And I'm from Massachusetts originally, so really familiar with Fidelity, really wanted the chance to get back to the Northeast. And so jumped at the opportunity to, to join a program that you know was tagging itself as developing the next future CFOs of Fidelity business units. So did that, and the idea is you get pretty broad exposure to uh, you know to the firm in, in relatively short order, right? You do six month rotations mm-hmm. in four different parts of the firm, and then you graduate and you come out, and you know Fidelity really has a, a sort of continuous career rotational program aspect to it, even after you're out of that traditional rotational program as well. So after I graduated, I spent the majority of my time, five years or so, in a role in our Fidelity institutional business. So it's a, a really interesting business for Fidelity. They provide we provide custody for registered investment advisors and then clearing for correspondent broker dealers as well. And I, I worked on the broker dealer side of the business. And up until 2008 or so, Fidelity was the clearing provider for a couple of really large firms, JP Morgan and Bank of America. And around that time, they lost both both in the course of a year as a result of J.P. Morgan buying Bear Stearns and then Bank of America buying Merrill Lynch. And so both had self-clearing capabilities that sort of made them take away the need for a clearing provider like Fidelity. So I don't know what percentage of the business those two represented, but needless to say, they were pretty considerable at that point in time. And I think there were a lot of hard discussions around whether or not the business could even survive. But, uh, you know, kudos to the leadership at the time. They continued to invest in that business and grew it back, you know, even larger than it was prior to having those two big clearing firms. And so, you know, I had a really interesting experience there. Went through, you know, an acquisition of a smaller clearing firm. So JP Morgan Clearing exited the the business and we sort of did a a non-typical acquisition, which was a, a purchase of the client book versus the purchase of the actual business itself. And then, you know, went through the, the the process of trying to renegotiate those deals anyway and how that impacts sort of the valuation of that deal was uh was was pretty challenging and unique. So really great experience there. And then also, you know, experience in sort of waves of, of regulation. Around the time that I was in that group, we had DOL was coming in with a new set of rules that were really going to force a convergence of of sort of the advisory model and and bring together sort of the the broker dealer and RIA models under something that looked more like a a across the board fiduciary standard. And that was just a massive change for anybody who was running a broker dealer business at the time. So, you know, a ton of strategic discussions and preparations for what the impact of that could be. And then sure enough, we change administrations and all that goes away anyway. So this is the nature of... uh, of different administrations is you've got ebbs and flows in terms of regulatory tightness and, and the ethos around what's important. And you got to adjust to those over time and find ways to still meet client demands. Yeah. Just a quick comment before we continue on to your segmentation and moving into the digital assets lab. And I know there's some really interesting projects that were incubated there too. But before we hop in there, do you think that there was uh, an aspect of your personal risk aversion or how you think about risk? you know, with your first foray into the world of finance 
being the you know global recession and not just a global recession but one that had a lot of dominoes stacked that you know people are still studying today you know the over securitization how we you know think about collateral how you think about personal risk you know, do, do you think that guided some of your career i know that you moved kind of away from being a financial advisor just because it's you know it's a challenging role to go like you mentioned go prospect those types of, of potential clients as a, as a 25 year old so I'm, I mean, it sounds like that was a big piece of it, but how do you think that that shaped how you thought about your career and, and risk and the world of finance? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it certainly had a big impact. You know, looking back, right, I think what brought down some of those really large financial services institutions were risk management practices that were, you know, not fully up to par or sort of interconnectedness of uh, exposure across the financial ecosystem that that wasn't fully understood. And I think there are a lot of corollaries to be drawn to some of the things that have happened in the crypto market now, right? I think there are lessons that traditional capital markets and financial services have, have learned the hard way over time, not to say that it's ever fully solved, right? Even through, you know, the broker dealer and, and capital markets businesses have been around for a long time, but we were still learning hard lessons all the way through 2008, right? But I think the interesting thing from the perspective of the crypto ecosystem is just the acceleration of that learning curve of the hard lessons right. that have been learned, right? I think <laughs> there's a lot of similar stories that that you could draw parallels to that have, that have happened sure. in the past in financial services around you know, under collateralized loans and, you know, contagion effect from exposure cascading across um, multiple counterparties and, and people not really having an understanding of the true risk profile of the firms that they're interacting with. I think those are all things that are not, you know, unique to crypto. I think they're fundamental business principles that that have existed and, uh, you know, caused problems for financial services for a long time. I just think that, you know, what we've seen unfold is just a, a really accelerated learning curve again for, for crypto, which has been which has been hard because it's it's happened all at once and and it's been really painful and and that's how these things tend to work. But I would hope that on the backside that we get some better business practices, you know, perhaps we get some more comprehensive regulation that looks at this in a really thoughtful way, you know, from a consumer protection perspective, but also from the perspective of, of not stifling innovation and not putting yeah. the US in a position where we're behind other countries in terms of uh, having the ability to to use crypto in ways that can benefit you know consumers over time. That's the balance. Uh, but I, I think you know one of the things that that strikes me as pretty clear from this, there, there have been lots of folks in the crypto industry who I think are hesitant to have any sort of regulation come into play. And, and yeah. I think the, the thought is, you know, we can figure it out on our own or, you know, these things can be handled via the blockchain or, you know, there's lots of different thoughts on on how or why regulation is bad or good. My perspective is, you know, that I think, unfortunately, what we've seen play out is that when you combine sort of relatively nascent ecosystem and business models with greed, that it tends to err on a path where, you get these problems where there's there's a mismatch in sort of risk reward philosophies, and then in some cases that risk has been passed along to consumers who are who are just unknowing of of the type of risk that they're taking on for a given situation, right? And so you look at all that and you say, you know, that's where regulation is is good because you know I think everybody in the ecosystem would agree that we don't want to put consumers, you know, right. at risk of, of holding the bag in some of these scenarios where where things go wrong, and so I think. 
that's where you look and you say that regulation has been pretty good over time of finding ways to ensure consumer protection. It's a little tricky. I mean, I feel like the SEC actually gets kind of a, a bad rap, but the, you know they can't really regulate proactively. So they have to then retroactively, and you're seeing a lot of this, the DOL and actually DOJ too. I mean, there's tons of money flowing into the government to start you know, coming back through some of these uh, issues that have been kind of plaguing this system for a while. But it, you know, it's not that well received either because of the sort of libertarian tint that a lot of this started in. Yeah, if you go all the way back to reading the Bitcoin white paper, you can realize that decentralized finance was that first iteration using the tech. And then, yeah, it's just interesting to think about, especially going back through time and how these different winters have sort of formed the next waves of all the projects and all the exchanges that have come out and kind of what those goals are. I think um, Adam Draper, Tim Draper's son, put out kind of an interesting article where he said he had met, you know, Brian Armstrong from Coinbase and had discussed kind of what one global financial infrastructure would look like and that it would probably be built in these, you know, next few iterations. But in that article, he put out or just blog, he also listed a couple of events that I'm not sure if you remember each of them, but in 11 Silk Road crashes, 13 Mount Gox, 17 was the big ICO bubble. And I think we could probably cement FTX as a, as a major crash uh, that's, you know, may drive another winter or at least some really uh, maybe necessary introspection for maybe some of the venture dollars flowing into the projects just in terms of diligence. Uh, you could probably say that across a lot of the sectors, to be honest, but I think it's a, not just a result of the ecosystem, but also in the in the financing of the ecosystem. Those incentives are really important to remember because, you know, as purely uh, sort of this libertarian sort of uh, idealistic thing was promulgated, now all of a sudden we've got you know, a lot of mixed incentives going through how scaling the ecosystem is going to look. And maybe that's a natural segue into how you got interested in and how Fidelity Digital Assets started because that was back in 14, which I think was probably one of the earliest labs, at least in kind of the institutional world. So we'd love to hear the history of that. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Fidelity's uh, got a pretty good history here. Uh, some of the initial blockchain research started in 2014 in our Fidelity Center for Applied Technology. Soon after that, we launched that into a fully fledged blockchain incubator in that group. And, and they were tasked with developing blockchain capabilities that Fidelity could be used, uh, could use for future products and services. 2015, we started accepting donations in Bitcoin to our Fidelity charitable unit. Hmm. Uh, and then in 2018, Fidelity Digital Assets, which is uh, the business that I'm a part of now, was born to offer custody and trading solutions for Bitcoin. And the, the thinking was really twofold at that point in time. Uh, one is, we had done a lot of experimentation in, in some of those applied technology groups, and you can learn a ton from experimentation, but you really can accelerate your understanding of what will and will not work for customers when you're in the market trying to sell you a service. That's a great uh, point. So launching a business around these capabilities that we developed in-house really made sense. Uh, and then two, we believed that the institutional marketplace was really underserved by existing crypto providers at that point in time, right? right. Fidelity's got a really long history of providing services to institutions of all kinds. Um, we know the market well. We serve something like 4,000 institutions today through various wow. offices. 
We understand what they demand on the traditional finance side of the house. And so we believed we were in really good position to build a crypto platform that had the highest that met the high standards of institutional rigor that um, those types of traditional financial services institutions uh, would have. Does Fidelity manage uh, custody as well? I mean, I think that's probably one of the biggest issues across the space still that kind of, I mean, maybe it gets talked about, maybe it doesn't. But yeah, I feel like the custody solutions are one of the key aspects of being really successful as a, a provider in this space right now still. Yeah, it's a good lead in because we, we really believe that everything starts with custody. Um, mm. So we really, we started the foundation of the entire set of capabilities that we developed in crypto, starting with ultra high security custody. And what we utilize uh, offline vaulted storage for the cryptographic key material, and then add our own sort of special fidelity, additional layers of security and controls that you'd expect from an institution that provides custody for 10 trillion in customer assets across the enterprise. And then from there, we built some of our other capabilities, right? So started with custody, but then we said, you know, it makes a lot of sense to layer on the trading capability that settles directly to that cold storage custody solution. And so we developed our own multi-venue smart order routing trade platform that again, automatically, automatically connects and settles to that custody solution. And then we wrapped it all up with a white glove service model with trading and transfers available 20 by seven and service availability 24 by seven to provide really that high touch that institutions mm-hmm. expect. And then on top of that, you know, we we try to seek all the assurances we can from both a regulatory standpoint and, uh, and a control standpoint. So, you know, we went out and we received our limited purpose trust company charter from New York, which is really essentially the yeah. highest standard for a crypto service provider that we have in the U.S., uh, yeah, I can only think of one other. And if people are really conscious, they'll go back through the podcast and realize that that was the only other person uh, or only other representative of a, a group who can call themselves a trust company and some of these white labeled uh, solutions. So we'll see how savvy some of our listeners are if they can figure out that there's only I think there may only be one other trust company technically. But yeah, I love the fact that Fidelity's taken all of the actual steps to I mean, it doesn't sound like there's a single beat missed. And I also love at some point uh, in the conversation, we don't have to spend too long on it, but the, the role of trust, I think, is really an interesting one because I think in the institutional grade solutions that we're talking about, no one's going to manage their own private keys. No one's going to do the, you know cold storage. Yet, I don't think it, it detracts at all personally from the environment, but you know to rely on a, a major institution as an intermediary while discussing, you know, blockchain, smart contracts, all of this uh, disintermediating technology. It's interesting that we, in this time and age, are still dealing with trust issues and security issues, and a lot of it's still really complex. Uh, Personally, I don't think it, it, again, detracts from the ecosystem, especially in the institutional side, to have these solutions. I actually think it's generally a positive for the time being, because like you said, the early iterations of the uh, digital assets lab was we got to be able to feel it, understand it, to be able to grow it, to be able to iterate on top of it, to be able to build new products, to service the environment. But kind of curious as to how you feel about all of that. And uh, again, we probably should step back into how you got interested in the space. And you've been with the digital assets group for a long time now too, right? Yeah, since 2019, I've been with 
so I'll start there and then I'll, I'll go to the uh, sort of philosophy and some of the things you talked about in terms of self-custody. Yeah, so I guess I, I got interested in a similar way to a lot of others, you know, on the personal side, sort of exploration of, uh, of trading and starting to, to mess around with, with some crypto assets in my personal account. I had the benefit of, you know, at the time that I was happening to look for the next role, we had sort of just spun up this Fidelity Digital Assets unit. And I, I got to see, you know, Tom Jessup, who currently is the, the head of the unit, present out on some of the thoughts, you know, in the direction that we wanted to go with it. And at that point in time, they had a, a part-time CFO who was doing, you know, supporting the unit, like as 25% of their role. You know, the unit was only 70 people at that point in time. Um, but it was at the point where I think there was a recognition that, it was it was going to be an area of growth and needed the full time attention of a of a full time CFO. So things sort of lined up well in that way. You know, I expressed interest both from a, a crypto standpoint as well as uh, you know stepping into this role. I had to be willing to to sign up for being an army of one for some mm. period of time. And that, I think that's you know probably familiar and true for a lot of startup CFOs, but I guess a little bit unique from the perspective of working in a, a really large company like Fidelity going from managing a decent sized group to you know wanting to take on this role and needing to sign up for the idea that uh, I was going to be an army of one for a while and that was going to be a very different uh, sort of set of responsibilities but in my mind why it was really attractive to me and, and it is it has played out fantastically you know for for my career development uh, my you know just staying engaged and interested in, in what I do every day is, the breath that you're able to get from, you know, stepping into that role as again, sort of a, a growth business CFO within a within a much broader organization, right? That manifested itself in a couple of ways. I think one, probably a lot of your your CFOs, you know, don't even think twice about this because it's the standard way you operate if if you're a standalone business unit. But, you know, coming into fidelity a lot of uh, a lot of business unit finance folks don't spend a lot of time at the legal entity financial level actually right so you know thinking about a big corporation you don't need to set up a new legal entity every time you set up a new product line or or business mm -hmm. unit right so a lot of times there's a just a disaggregation of how you think about finance within your unit versus how things are done at the legal entity level but what this uh, role presented me an opportunity to do was to was to care about both because Crypto is unique in its regulatory structuring, uh, so we needed to set up a separate legal entity to be the service provider for crypto services to right. our institutional customers. And so we did set up that separate legal entity, and then in fact, over time, grew that into two legal entities. So we now have a legal entity in the U.S., and we've got a, a U.K.-based legal entity that services uh, non-U.S. customers. Uh, and so from a career development standpoint, right, that was important to me to be able to have that sort of full end-to-end -end ownership of the finance function, which included caring about, you know, audits and signing off on the financial statements, cared about balance sheet capitalization, cared about regulatory capital and, and how you uh, handled planning for, you know, what can be a pretty, pretty volatile environment in terms of customer interactions that impact your regulatory capital on a day-to-day -day basis. So uh, all that was really interesting and exciting to me when I looked at the opportunity and, and it's, it's played out really well. So I appreciate all the experiences that I've been able to get. And that's, you know, the, the risk that I was taking up front, uh, banking on the idea that I'd get that broad exposure starting off with an army of one. Obviously, now the business has progressed. You know, we're we're going to be north of 500 people at the end of the wow. year. Wow. Congratulations. Team underneath me. So it's been a great evolution. So it's interesting. I was actually, when I was asking the question around trust, uh, I was actually rereading 
quote from Abigail Johnson talking about kind of the earlier stages of her kind of obsession with trying to figure out the full tech stack, which I thought was really, really cool. And one of her comments was starting with, you know, custody solutions seem to tie antithetical to the technology, which I just thought was a great comment. I just love the approach. She basically came out to say, you know, Fidelity's had you know, this long, you know, privately owned uh, success for generations due to, in part, contrarian thinking. And when you know, people are running for the door, being able to have the, the wherewithal, the confidence and the kind of long-term approach to uh, nascent technologies and industries, you know, to be able to double down and really learn and feel all of that. So that's kind of where that trust question was coming from. So, I mean, it's nice to have somebody who's kind of leading the charge with so much thoughtful consideration in the space and where it makes sense for Fidelity to provide support versus how to push the industry forward and kind of just a nice patient approach, especially as you said, in terms of the uh, kind of the volatility of the space where all of these, uh, you know, these winters and kind of crashes are happening you know, at such a so much faster of a clip. It, it takes a ton of patience and a ton of uh, maturity to go through uh, the volatility and be able to express, you know, what your priorities are, um, you know, maybe in a in a time where there's a lot of value you know, loss at the time. So yeah, it's kind of where that was, that was stemming from. But I do think it's super interesting that the group has continued to expand so rapidly. I think there was a comment in that article too, that one of the first offerings was just Bitcoin and 401ks. Is that right? Does that sound? Yeah, I'm not sure how long ago that was, but I think that probably spurred a ton of interest too. Yeah, yeah, that's fairly recent. So yeah, definitely a little bit of a response to sort of market place demand there. You know, I think the the 401k unit was uh, just continued to hear a lot of interest from plan sponsors in, in having a product that could gain their per plan participants exposure to digital assets. And so this this was really in response to that. And we think, you know, a relatively innovative product that gives, you know, those who are who are seeking it a, a way to to allocate a certain proportion of, of their retirement assets to uh, to digital assets. So yeah, certainly, uh, you know, that was a great example of a way that we think about the, the capabilities that are being developed within my Fidelity Digital Assets Unit, potentially being used in other ways over time, right? So I think from a long-term philosophy perspective, we, we started this unit and wanted to build a core set of capabilities. We went direct to the institutional market, but I think part of the vision always entailed the idea that over time, we, we expect that digital assets will begin to look and feel like any other asset class to investors. Right. And so, you know, we wanted to build those set of capabilities. And then when the time is right and when the demand is there and when the regulatory environment is right, we fully expect that we'll be able to, you know, provide digital asset services to an increasing number of customers that we touch uh, again in the fullness of time. Sweet. Well, I'd love to take a quick step back and run through a few of the questions that I really like to indulge in uh, in most of the podcast for some continuity's sake. But would love to hear your perspective on uh, just a personal definition on what you'd consider a modern CFO today. Uh, maybe some of the characteristics that embody a modern CFO, or maybe some things that modern CFOs should have on their radar that they don't today. We would just start there. Yeah, when I think about 
the CFO role now, I think about the the CFO role really broadening in the context of the organization, right? So I always like to aim to be viewed as a business person first who happens to know a lot about the finance of the business versus a finance person who happens to know a little bit about how the business is run. What I mean by that is it's not okay for the modern CFO to be a passive observer to business activities and just report out on how things are going or how they went, right? The, the days of business leaders making decisions on gut and experience are, are largely gone, right? Virtually every company in the world now has a data-driven decision-making mindset. And so the modern CFO you know, really needs to be deeply engaged in the decision-making activities of the business, both in traditional finance terms, so P&L, NPV, IRR, return on capital, but also the non-traditional finance terms, right? They, they need to understand both financial and non-financial data. They need to understand how those interplay between each other and then how all of your data can be used to derive insights and make better decisions. And then lastly, I guess, one of the things I think a lot about is how I think the CFO role probably needs to be more willing to step outside of the traditional CFO swim lane when necessary mm-hmm. to help the business in new, new and unique ways. So at my very first job out of undergrad, They taught all the incoming analysts that you are literally not allowed to say, that's not my job. Like that's a phrase you are not allowed to say. So I've carried that kind of philosophy with me throughout the rest of my career, right? And I think some of the most meaningful experiences that I've had were were not handed to me in a job description or given to me by a manager, but they were formed by me raising my hand or asking a question or in some case, just starting to do something in an area where there was a gap or an opportunity that wasn't being addressed. And I found that there are very few managers who will take issue with someone taking the initiative to just go ahead and solve a problem without asking, as long as it's not too far outside of the realm of, of your role. So, you know, that that's another piece of the mindset that I think is important is, you know, willingness to sort of adapt and evolve around the edges, some of the things that the CFO can be involved in and help the business, you know, improve upon. I really appreciate that. And I typically ask people to hit that back 30 second button a few times when I hear really great advice. And I think anybody who's aspiring to the CFO role or is in their first time CFO role should really consider that advice and take it to heart. I think that was really well articulated. I appreciate that, Brad. I want to talk a little bit about 2023 and the next 12 months. What's on the horizon for you and for the digital assets group? Uh, What's top of mind? What are you most focused on trying to build right now? Yeah, so certainly in general, focused on new opportunities to serve the rest of the Fidelity Enterprise in terms of crypto capabilities where appropriate. From a finance team perspective, one of the things I've been spending a fair amount of time on is actually preparing for uh, crypto tax regulation. So oh, right. uh, maybe a little bit esoteric in nature, but you know, I think this is an area where crypto is is going to catch up to traditional financial services. And there's obviously already been some indications of some rules to come. But this is sort of one of those areas where, you know, I talk about having the opportunity to raise raise your hand and uh, and take on some new responsibility sets. So, you know, as we anticipated that there was going to be some new requirements around crypto tax reporting in the not too distant future, you know, we started to work on what that would look like. And I've actually started to build out a team that's going to help us in Fidelity Digital Assets prepare 
for any requirements are, which are going to be defined, you know, and we expect that this will look a little bit more like a traditional set of brokerage reporting requirements, right? So I think in the future, you should expect to get something that looks like a 1099, you know, multiple different kinds of 1099s from your crypto services provider. And that's a big initiative for, you know, the government, and the IRS is, I think, starting to bring some of these things back under the existing frameworks and umbrellas where they make sense. And uh, certainly the expectation is that crypto is not a tax-free realm. And so this is just going to be one step in the direction of bringing crypto up to par with the rest of financial services. And that's an area where I think we'll spend a lot of time and focus on getting ready for that over the next 12 months. Yeah. And for those listeners who don't know, the IRS received an $80 billion budget over the course of last summer. So this is not a an if, but when. So I think uh, I think Brett makes a really good point just to highlight the fact that this taxable ecosystem is it's already here. So you know, having the foresight and wherewithal to understand that the IRS is going to be you know, pretty active in the crypto space, I think is just a good, just good practice. And we've seen these iterations through, you know, the idea, and we're still going through this. I think that there's, we're going to see what happens with uh, how securities law interacts with the crypto space. And there are some ongoing conversations with the SEC. And it's just, I think it's just part of the space and how early we, it's a good representation of how early we are still. So I think it's smart to have a good sense of the regulatory environment, but then also, you know, likely seek out counsel where appropriate to ensure that you're maintaining compliance. Because the worst part of these crashes is that they're riddled with some of the greed that we talked about earlier. And there are some consumers who aren't well protected against some, you know, close to to, or considered fraud or financial crime, which really sets back the interest in the space and the uh, the participants. So I want to do the best we can to th- have thoughtful conversations and have thoughtful regulations around all of this. So I think that's a great initiative for the year to come. I think it'll continue to drive the space forward. So I really appreciate that. I'd love to drive into one of my favorite parts of the podcast, talk about one of the things that you feel may be underestimated in the world today. And if there's anyone currently addressing that you know, that topic or space, but love to drive into this. It's always really interesting given the unique vantage points of the the people we talk to on this show. Yeah, I'll give you a, a quick hit. You know, I, I don't have the background to fully understand all the implications of this, but one thing that I look out at now, especially, you know, in a post-pandemic world and how, you know, globalization of the workforce and the virtual environment, it, it will mm-hmm. sort of impact staffing and how we build out teams. Uh, you know, I think about what, globalization is already done for an economy like the Indian workforce, right? And you think, you look forward and you say, do you see things like that continuing to evolve and emerge? Can you imagine what that looks like for the Chinese workforce over time, right? I think there's already been pockets of the ecosystem where, you know, there there have been uh, movements and certainly traditional, you know, product manufacturing and those types of roles. But I think if you think, even if you look at the service economy over time, right, you think about the amount of people um, that, could be, you know, utilized and and globalized in terms of the workforce for any company in the world now. One, I think it really just expands your access to talent and and it can go anywhere. And then two, you know, I think it really potentially changes the the opportunity set for people in some emerging market countries, right? Where normally, you know, prior to the world sort of going in this, you know, totally virtualized environment, I think people's Mm -hmm. opportunity set for work was more limited to the localized opportunities. And I think one of the things we're going to continue to see emerge is, is that just that globalization of opportunity set. And I think that can have really, really massive implications for what teams look like in the future and what workforces look like in the future, right? Even thinking back to pre-pandemic, 
I think Fidelity has had a large uh, set of teams in uh, in India and other parts of the world. And, you know, I think there was a little bit more of a mindset of like passing things along over time zones, right? And and not having that true end-to-end connection. But now you look at the way that teams work and there is no, there's no concept of passing off. It's sort of a continuous like evolution and discussion of teams that work across the globe together on the same things at the same time with a connected mindset. And hmm. yeah, I think that's going to be just a massive, a massive change that will continue to evolve over time. And I see huge opportunities for certain parts of the world to, to start to really step in and have more of their workforce contribute to, you know, sort of that globalized service economy. Yeah, absolutely. A, a bold case on productivity and innovation for sure. Do you see that happening at all in, internally with your groups? Or is the digital asset group global and partially remote? Have you had to deal with that as you know an army of one to you know, 500? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the good news is that our unit was sort of all, already global, even pre-pandemic. The nature of crypto is that the expectation was over time that we were going to get you know closer and closer to sort of 24/7 availability because right. uh, the crypto market doesn't sleep right and and in order to do that successfully you need to have a geographically distributed workforce we had already made you know a lot of efforts to do that even pre-pandemic and so i guess in some ways we were somewhat uniquely prepared for this sort of scenario because if you're used to working in virtual teams anyway before you're required to you know it's just sort of more of the same it's just a you know an extra dose of it so yeah, I'd say we were uh, somewhat uniquely prepared for this evolution, but I think even still, it's going to continue to uh, evolve over time and we're going to see more and more of it, even where, you know, I think still predominantly US-based, but I think you could see that that change in the next 10, 15 years where teams could look a lot more like the distribution of uh, of the population of the world over time. Yeah, that's great. It's a really interesting comment. That's, I really appreciate you sharing that perspective. I was thinking this is kind of a, a random thought here, but as I was preparing for our conversation today, I went through a bunch of the kind of my go-to resources for preparing for interviews and thinking about crypto and thinking about the global marketplace. And I stumbled across a really great interview with uh, David Rubenstein and Abigail Johnson that I highly recommend people check out if they're interested in Fidelity's history in general. And it just made me think to ask in a world with so much information and you know, we were chatting about FTX prior and you know, the world of Twitter being up where a lot of people are getting information from. I'm just kind of curious. I know Fidelity puts out really high quality research and reports, and there's a lot of marketing and media that goes into trying to educate participants. But I was kind of curious as to where you go, or if you've read anything, maybe even outside of financial news or crypto news, or just how you're receiving your information. And if you're reading anything that or listening to any podcast that you know, listeners would value from. Yeah, it's funny. I don't have a, a whole lot to add. Uh, I, I I use all the same sources. I think that you mentioned. I think you know, there's there's a lot of great resources and people who are willing to give away their opinions for free on crypto Twitter. At the same time, I uh, I like to stay away from that to to stay right. in the echo chamber sometimes because I do think that they're um, you know it's always good to have perspective. And I think if you go too deep down the rabbit hole sometimes and you're you're really embedded in some of those echo chambers you lose sight of you know what's sort of going on in the broader world around you and financial services and so I, I always try to take I love learning new things about crypto and I love going deep and understanding things at a pretty fundamental level but at the same time I want to make sure that I'm balanced enough to not get too focused on you know crypto as the end all be all and always bring it back I'm sort of pragmatic in how I think about 
how crypto services can be used for our customers over time. And I tend to take the approach of, you know, I think these things are going to happen more, a little bit more gradually, and we're going to find better and better use cases for customers to interact with digital assets versus, you know, the the extreme perspective that, uh, you know, crypto is going to eat eat the world and, and be right. the only thing that's left from a finance perspective. So I think that's probably a, a pretty nuanced and balanced approach to to learning. I think anyone who oversimplifies is sort of missing it still. It's it's still a pretty complicated scenario with, again, as I mentioned, a lot of kind of new and emerging incentive structures as to how products are, are being built. So uh, I did want to take this opportunity also to give you a chance. It sounds like the team is probably still expanding. Would love for you to share how people can learn more about Fidelity Digital Assets or maybe even get in contact with your team to learn more, maybe check out uh, some of the Fidelity careers and just make sure that people have an opportunity to continue to see Fidelity Digital Assets as one of the market leaders, having been in the space for a good amount of time here. Yeah, absolutely. Our, our human resources and talent acquisition teams have done a terrific job. I can provide you separately with a link that I think we now have within our sort of Fidelity jobs portal. There's the ability to click in and see the roles that are dedicated to digital assets within Fidelity. Because it's been such an area of growth for us, You know, we, we really wanted to focus on reaching out to those people who are, who are interested in it you know, not only from the perspective of those who are experienced or have, you know, again, have crypto experience from prior roles, but also those who are interested in learning and want to sort of come in and and take the opportunity to have a place like Fidelity to take their first shot at crypto. So yeah, happy to share that. It's definitely been a a huge area of focus for us and, you know, in what's been a competitive talent environment, we've seen some backing off and some other firms uh, have some challenges from the personnel perspective, but I think it's it's still an environment where you know it it is a challenge and it's something that we focus a lot on to get the right talent uh, with the right. right mindset to combine sort of that crypto curiosity with some of the fidelity philosophies that we think are are still really important in any of our businesses, even on the crypto side, which is you know customer first mindset, customer obsession, doing things the right way. Well, in my opinion, that's a, a very organic and really, really high value marriage of uh, fidelity values and a nascent uh, emerging technology like the blockchain space. Brett, I hate the fact that we have to start wrapping up, but I wanted to say thank you so much for being on the Modern CFO today. I, I really hope we have the opportunity to stay in touch as your group continues to grow. And just wanted to just say thank you one more time. So appreciate it, Andrew. Nice to talk to you as well. Thanks. Thanks.